Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. I don't know if you have ever read the Old Testament and some of the stories in the Old Testament and just thought, where on earth is this coming from? Right? Has anybody ever read one of the Old Testament stories and be like, this confuses me completely. Why on earth would this happen? Or why would it happen like that? Or why would God say it like that? And how do we reconcile these outrageous stories with what we've heard about Jesus? Have you ever kind of like started in the New Testament, read through it a little bit, go, this is really awesome. Jesus has got some great teachings here on the gospel, some amazing miracles happening. God seems really great, seems like a great guy. And, and so let me, hey, let me venture into the Old Testament. You venture into the Old Testament and you read a story and you're like petrified. You're like, what is going on here? And you're like, you know what? I'll just leave the Old Testament for later and I'll just go back to the new. Oh, there's Jesus again with the lambs in the field. That's way better. I feel like I can handle this now, right? Um, And so this is how the journey that we often go on when we begin our journey into Scripture, when we don't really know who God is and uh, and when we're still trying to figure him out, but the scriptures were given to us so that we would know God, so that we would know his heart. And so how do we reconcile these outrageous stories, especially in the Old Testament, with the God that we know in the New Testament and the the revelation of Jesus in general? And what I found is is that people often say that, you know, or, or people that don't believe in God say that he, if he exists, he's gone to lengths to hide himself. He's, he's hidden. But what, you, what we see about God and what we know about Jesus is that he's hiding in plain sight. He's hiding in plain sight. And we're able to actually find him in, even in nature. The book of Romans 1 tells us this. It's like, I don't, where is God? I don't know. I don't see him. Why does he hide himself? And it's like, have you ever seen a sunset? God is not hiding. He's in plain sight. And even the very creation that we are a part of points to Jesus, points to the glory of God, points to uh, His eternal nature and His goodness and His glory. And in Scripture, it's the same thing. The Old Testament isn't a mystery. All the answers of the Old Testament are hidden in plain sight. The only thing that we need to interpret the Bible is the Bible. The Bible gives us the answers that we need and, and, and all the information that we need to interpret those stories. The problem is, is that we don't read it enough. We don't actually go through it. We don't actually look at what it is saying and how certain things are clarified. And and so all that we need to interpret the Bible is the Bible itself. It's it's hidden in plain sight, the answers for all these, even these outrageous stories in the Old Testament. Often the things that happened to Israel in the Old Testament was written as an example to us. The things that they went through that seemed so crazy, the miracles that happened, the words that the prophets spoke were all examples to the church. God was through the nation of Israel already beginning to speak truth to the world. They are known, as it says in Romans, as the oracles of God through whom God has spoken to the world. And through that nation, by their example, God has made us aware of certain things. It tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. It says, now these things happened to them, talking about the nation of Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. 
They happen to them as an example, but it's for our instruction so that we can learn from, from them and from their stories and from even these outrageous things in the Old Testament. It says, on whom the end of the ages has come. That's talking about the church. And so the Old Testament reveals so much to us, but it can only be understood once you know the New Testament. Once you know the gospel, once you know the grace of God, it begins to unlock the Old Testament. And so the New Testament is like a key that helps you understand the Old Testament. And the key of the New Testament to understand that is Jesus. So Jesus is the key to understanding Scripture. In, in theological terms, we speak about hermeneutics, which is the ability or the, or the, or the practice, the, uh, the, the field of study of interpreting Scripture. And Jesus is the hermeneutical key. In other words, until you understand the grace of God, until you understand the fullness of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the complete work of the cross, you'll struggle to understand the rest of the Bible. And that was me for many years. I read the Bible many times, and then it's like the penny of the gospel dropped, and all of a sudden I had the key of interpretation. I could go back, and I could reread everything I knew before, and it's like the Bible just opened up in front of me, and all of a sudden I understood things I never understood before, and I saw things I never saw before, and all of it points to Jesus, because the Scripture is Jesus. He is the Word of God, and the Word became flesh. He's the truth of God. And so Jesus is our, our, our answer. He's our, he's our key. And every issue that we face, God is saying, Jesus is your answer. And so even in the Old Testament, it points to the sinfulness that exists within us as humanity, the brokenness, the selfishness, the, the self-centeredness, the self-righteousness. And the Old Testament goes to lengths to reveal the sinfulness of man and the judgment that would be due to us as a result of our sinfulness. But then it also through that points us to Jesus as the answer, as God's answer to this reality of sin. It's Jesus. God's answer to every situation in our lives is Jesus. If you need, if, if you are, if you've sinned, Jesus is your forgiveness. When we are lonely, Jesus is our constant companion. When we mourn and when we're sad, He is our comforter. When we find ourselves in a broken situation, He is our restorer. He's the one who redeems. He's the one who turns around. It doesn't matter what you face. When you're, when you're in lack, He is your provision. When you're sick, He is your healing. When, when you're lost, He is your Savior. When you don't know what to do, He is our wisdom. He is all things to us. And so Jesus is the answer, and it's how we are able to understand the Scripture and when you realize that every page of the scripture whispers his name, when you know that every story is pointing towards him, when you know that every part of the Bible is not just a part to be, in, to be separated and to be interpreted by itself, but is to be included in the entire context, when you begin to see the, the big picture, you realize Jesus is like that one puzzle piece that makes the entire picture come together. You know that one when you've, when you've built a 5,000 piece and, you, and all of it, there's one missing? And you go on this massive search and you find that one piece and it completes the entire picture. Jesus completes the picture and when it's complete, guess what the picture is? It's a picture of Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. And so this is why we are so passionate about preaching the gospel because it helps us understand God's heart and the scriptures. And that's why we're doing this series 
on the pictures of Jesus showing how they point, the Old Testament and, and all the stories in the Bible point towards him. And today I want to look at a message called the snake of healing, the snake of, of healing. Last week we looked at the sign of Jonah, and today I want to look at the snake of healing. And again, uh, we read the story in the Old Testament, and then we come to the New Testament, and we're like, in the Old Testament, we're like, what does it even mean? But it's hiding in plain sight, the meaning. It's in the New Testament, and Jesus actually spoke about it. And I'm sure many of you have heard John 3.16. How many of you have heard John 3.16? All right. I'll ask you to recite it, but this isn't Sunday school. So, so John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's a scripture that we've all learned since uh, we, were, we were kids and we, we've all come to know and believe in. But just two verses before this, I'd like to read from John 3 verse 14. And we actually see something amazing that Jesus says. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John 3 and verse 14. And it says this, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Christians, can we remember that? God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was an act of, of love. It was an act of rescue. It was an act of redemption. It was, it was God reaching out to sinful humanity saying, I want to save you from this circumstance. I want to save you from this judgment and condemnation. And I want to put you in a, a relationship with me. This is the heart of God. And so Jesus speaks about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. And I want to talk about this this morning in this message entitled, The Snake of Healing. Now, how many of you have ever encountered a snake? And I'm not like talking about, you know, at the zoo behind some glass, or, you know, some of you don't even go into that room where the snakes are, because you're like, what if they get out? Um, but how many of you have had a close encounter with a snake somewhere? Anybody here? Right, it's something that you're likely to never forget, okay? If you've had that kind of an encounter, you'll know just how petrifying it can be. Uh, Brent was telling me how one of his friends um, actually drove into a garage and there was a cobra in the garage and he froze. He, he didn't know what to do, but he's still sitting inside the car and he turned to his brother and he said, what do we do? We're trapped. <laughs> just absolute panic. And his brother said to him, why don't, why don't you just reverse out? You know, just, we're still in the car, we're fine, just reverse. But that's what happens when you encounter a snake. It's absolutely petrifying. And, um, and it reminds me, I've had one or two encounters that were a little bit too close for comfort uh, in my own life. And one of them, when I was about 14 years old, uh, we were on, on holiday as a family. We just arrived on holiday, and uh, we were staying uh, on a farm, our farm that we had down at the coast, at the Cape Coast, and there's lots of snakes around there. And we had just arrived, and my, my dad and I went down to pump some water up from a freshwater fountain into a tank that we used for water in the home. 
and, uh, and my dad, the sun was kind of setting. My dad said to me, you've got to run up to the house and get me some tools that I need and bring them back down so we can get this, this done before it's dark. And so I ran up the hill. The house is kind of set up on the hill. And I ran up the hill. And just before I stepped off of the sand just in front of the house onto the porch, I heard this loud puffing sound. And I stepped back, and there was a massive puff adder um, lying right against the step where I was about to step over. And it was obviously threatened and was making a big noise. And so, as you can imagine, I ran back to my dad, and I said, Dad, you've got to come quick. There's a snake. And my dad's response was, forget the snake, get the tools. <laughs> and so I said, okay. And so I ran back towards the snake, and... Um, I, I, I ran around the house and I went into the house. I said to my mom and to my siblings, don't go outside, there's a snake. But we needed to manage the situation because the snake was lying about a meter from the door to the outside room, which is where my brother and I slept. And so I needed to make sure, I needed to, I needed to this was where my leadership skills were really being honed. I needed to come up with a plan to ensure the snake doesn't enter our room while I'm down helping my dad. And so I got my seven-year-old brother, all right? This may not have been the best HR, you know, human resource decision I ever made, but I, you know, he was the only one left at the house. And so I said, seven-year-old brother, my brother's name is Nick. I said, come and sit here. And I, and I got him, I got him a bar stool, a wooden bar stool about this high and a fishing rod. And um, I said, you sit, you sit on that seat, and you hold this fishing rod, and if that puff adder sails up the step towards our room, you hit him with the fishing rod, and Dad and I will be back later. And so it took us about another hour down at the, at the water fountain. We got back, and the bar stool was lying on its side, and the fishing rod was in the bushes. And so we, we go around the house, we go to my brother, and we say, where's the snake? And he says... He says, I don't know. It got dark, and I got scared. <laughs> and so it wasn't the best uh, moment of delegation I ever had, but, but now we don't know where the snake is. And we suspected maybe in the room, and so I ran into the room, jumped on the little fridge that was inside there, and we bumped the toy box underneath the bed, and we just heard the snake going mad. It was hissing and puffing, and it knew it was trapped. And my dad came up with a, with, a, with a plan which wasn't so ingenious. Unfortunately, we, you know, I put an end to it. But his plan was that he was going to pull the toy box out and then take a stick, with a, a kind of a forked stick that he had kind of made. And I had the torch. And we were going to go on our stomachs face to face with the South African puff adder. And I was going to hold the torch and he was going to try and peg it horizontally to something. And... Um, I said, that's fine, that's fine, but if the snake comes for us, I'm going and I'm taking the torch with me, right? I'm out of here, and then you can deal with whatever remains. Um, and we came up with a better plan, and we moved the bed forward and walked on, and we managed to take care of the snake, but it was this crazy close encounter that we had with the snake. And for a lot of people, that is their worst nightmare. For many people, that is something that they would, that they would fear. It, it ranks right up there with spiders scorpions, and public speaking in terms of people's greatest fears, right? And um, so, so having a snake around you is, is, for a lot of people, their worst nightmare. And for the nation of Israel, remember this is an example to us, for the nation of Israel, this nightmare comes true. 
for the nation of Israel, they encounter these deadly venomous snakes in the wilderness. And we find it, and this is what Jesus was referring to in John 3, but we find it in Numbers 21. And I want to just read this so you can turn to Numbers verse, uh, chapter 21 if you're following with us in your Bible. But it says this, it says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Once again, the heart of man is always uh, discontent. We're always complaining. We're always negative. And what has happened here is that God has brought the people of Israel out of slavery. They were literally slaves, being beaten, crying out to God, save us from this hardship. We're perishing in this land. And God delivers them from their slavery and is marching them not to the wilderness, but through the wilderness. But before they reach the promised land, they begin to complain. Isn't that so like us as people? Like we say, God, save me from this and lead me into your destiny. And then when it doesn't immediately look like the promised land, we go, God, can you just send me back to the slavery because I don't know what you're doing out here. Clearly you don't care. And so often we grumble, we moan, we, we're discontent. And, and it was a form of faithlessness to not trust in God, to not believe His Word, to not believe in His promise. And how many of us go through that? We're, we're happy to come to church and worship God when everything in our lives is going well. But the moment something goes wrong, we're ready to abandon all faith and head straight back into slavery because God didn't come through for us. This is not the end of the story yet. We're only halfway to the promised land. We're only, we're only in the process that God has for us. We're not all the way there. But how many times on the way to the promised land, in the midst of the process, do we begin to complain about our situation? It's a lack of faith. We're not trusting in God. We're looking to our circumstances. And this is what happens to the people of Egypt. And so they begin to complain about God and, and they spoke against God and spoke against God's leader that he had put in place in Moses. And he says, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So they just said there was no food. Now they say they don't like it. That sounds like my kids, all right? They're like, I'm hungry. Here's food. I don't like this food. But you said you were hungry, right? And God was providing for them miraculously. They had manna falling from heaven, fresh bread every morning. God would send quail into the camp for them in the evening so that they could eat this, this, this great meal every evening. They, they would strike a rock and water would flow forth from it. I mean, miracles were happening to provide food for them in the wilderness. And they go, we don't like this worthless food. We're tired of manna and water coming from the rock. We want to go back to Egypt. So there's, there's rebellion in the heart of of these people and, and, and in, our, in our hearts as people, in, in the hearts of humanity, as we begin to rebel against God. And so, how often do we face the same situation? Never satisfied. It's never enough. God always has to be looking out for my needs, like Will was speaking about this morning. And so, the Bible here reveals the heart of man. That's, that's really our heart. And that rebellious heart that we have, there's a judgment against that sinfulness. All sin will be judged, and sin is something that is judged. And in the Old Testament, there's a judgment 
for sin. And that's what happens. And this is what God is showing us here. It says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Worst nightmare. Snakes arrive. Now you read this in the Old Testament. You're like, what is going on here? It's like God had a bad day and this was enough. He's like, you say one more thing about, that's it. Send the snakes. Send the snakes. I've had enough of these people. I do everything for them. <laughs> it literally sounds like me and my own kids. I then starve, okay? Then don't eat anything. Send the snakes in. So God sent the fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. That's the judgment for sin. And this is something that we see in the Old Testament, that there was a judgment that came in various ways. And in this specific story, it comes via these serpents in the wilderness, most likely cobras, uh, there's a specific cobra that we also find in, in many of the Egyptian uh, hi hieroglyphics and, and all of their carvings and seals, ancient seals and things. And, and, and many scholars believe that this is the kind of snake that was sent into the people. And, and, and so there's this calamity that happens. They're complaining, they're complaining, they're moaning, they're rebelling against God. They're saying, we don't want this life anymore. We don't want to believe in His promises. We don't want to go to the promised land. Send us back to slavery and judgment arrives. And God was showing this to us as an example. And so as the judgment comes, we see the response from the people of Israel in Numbers 21 verse 7. It says, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Like all of a sudden, they're like, we're dying, and we realize we messed up. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So pray to the Lord, they asked Moses, that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. This is a form of repentance when the people of Israel realize that there is judgment and they realize that they had rebelled against God who had only ever been faithful, who, they, who had given everything to deliver them, who had baptized them through the Red Sea, who, had taken them, who was taking them towards the promised land. And they realized they had spoken against this God who loves them and against Moses, and, and, and they recognize their sinfulness, and they say, we need help, we messed up. That's the essence of repentance. It's when you go, I know that I'm facing the consequences of my own actions, and I need help. I need God to help me. I need Him to step in. And so Numbers 21 verse 8, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, and this is the part that we often read and don't understand, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And that's the kind of thing that you're like, what is God on about? Like, just get Moses to walk out there and lay on of hands and just pray for them and everything will be fine. Or just get God to send the serpents away. But instead, he tells Moses to go to woodwork class and to like bronze a statue of a snake on a pole. And it's so difficult to understand this if you don't have that hermeneutical key, if you don't understand what it is that Jesus has done for us. And so he makes the snake uh, of bronze. He puts it on the pole and he holds it up. And the Bible tells us that when people looked at it, they were healed. There was healing that came by, by the, them looking 
uh, towards this snake on this pole. And that's actually why ambulances today, and I, I don't know if you put it together, but if you look at ambulances, that is the international symbol for an ambulance. And we've got a closer up shot there, is the snake wrapped around the pole because it is a symbol of healing. It's become the international sign for help arriving for those who need healing. So we go back to Jesus in John chapter number 3. And in John 3, 14, it says, Jesus is saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. All of a sudden, we begin to understand that the reason why God got Moses to put the serpent on the pole and to raise it up was because it was a foretelling of Jesus on the cross, being raised up for the sins of mankind. And Moses represented the law. And under the law, there is only judgment because if you try to fulfill the law in your own strength, you will fail. And once you have broken the law, you're guilty and judgment is due. And so in the time of Moses, there was judgment due. But God declares, even at this moment, even all the way back to the book of Numbers, He says, I will send one who will be lifted up for you. And when you look to Him, you will be healed. You'll have eternal life. You will be saved from death. Jesus had to be lifted up like that snake on the cross. And everybody who looks at the snake is healed from death. And so you might be asking, why a snake? Because many people have a problem. It's like, how can a snake be represented? Or how can Jesus be represented by a snake? It, it seems so, so disconnected in our minds. We typically interpret and connect a snake with evil. We know that the serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and, and this is through how, how sin entered the world. And so why is Jesus represented by a snake on this pole? Well, right back when sin entered the world, in the book of Genesis, God already made a promise. This is when we see one of the earliest prophecies about the coming Savior, because after the snake had and the serpent had deceived mankind and the evil one, the enemy, the devil had deceived mankind and plunged us into sin. And sin entered the world. God made a promise. And he said, the seed of the woman, and he spoke, and in that word seed, he uses capital S. It was talking about Jesus. It says, though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush its head. Though the serpent will strike its heel, he will crush its head. And so there's already a prophecy right in the beginning of the Bible about what Jesus would do. And so I can imagine the devil having seminars and conventions and think tanks and workshops trying to figure out how the seed is going to crush his head and doing everything in his power to prevent it, including inspiring Herod at the time to wipe out all the children under age two and, and, and trying to kill the Messiah. He's trying to figure out, what is the plan? What is the plan? I know he's coming. I know he's, it's prophesied that he will crush my head. How am I going to put an end to it? 
And so the enemy tries to figure out the plan, but what the devil could not have guessed in all of his attempts was the way that Jesus would defeat sin. It's the greatest plot twist in history. Because how Jesus defeated sin was not by standing apart from it and condemning it, but by becoming it and then destroying it in his own body. It's the most amazing plot twist. He became sin. And as sin was nailed to the cross. That's, you know, I was trying to think of, a, of an earthly analogy that would capture this, and, and, and any analogy would fail. But imagine if you had some arch nemesis, if you had uh, your, your greatest enemy, and you wanted to destroy him, and you couldn't destroy him, but you had the ability to become him and then destroy yourself. Imagine if you could become your enemy and then throw yourself off a bridge, and so doing, destroy your enemy. This is ultimately what Jesus did. So how did Jesus destroy the snake of sin and the power of sin? By becoming the snake and then being nailed to a cross. This is incredible. This is so beautiful. I love the fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. And when he was nailed to the cross, he destroyed sin, he condemned sin, he defeated the power of sin and death. And that is why in the grace of God, the Bible says sin has no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under the law like those who were with Moses, who would face judgment as they broke the law, but you are under grace. And grace crushed the head of the serpent. I can imagine the serpent accidentally fulfilling the prophecy and what a daft moment that was. He's like, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to strike his heel and try and kill him. But in striking the heel of the seed that was prophesied, he, he sealed his own demise. Because in striking the heel, his head was crushed. This is the beauty of the Scripture, that even these arbitrary Old Testament stories point us to what Jesus would do for us to save us from judgment, to save us from what would be due to us. By becoming death for us, he put death to death. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. To be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, because Jesus became sin for us and put sin to death in his own body, we have been set free from sin. And we get to be the righteousness of God. That's why Paul writes in the New Testament, he says, don't allow sin in your body. Don't allow it in your life. You don't need to have it there. It has no legal claim to be there. It has no right to be there. It has been removed when Jesus died on the cross. So don't let it reign. Don't let it dominate you. Don't let it lie to you. You have been set free. Amazing. Jesus became sin. He didn't just die for individual sin or for the sins of individuals, but became the very heart of sin and nailed that heart to the cross. And so now, all of a sudden, it makes sense why Jesus 
became the snake. And everyone who looked at the snake was healed. Now, the Bible often talks about looking unto or looking to or lifting up your eyes. David writes and he says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where will my help come from? And that phrase, looking to, is more than just kind of having a look out or, or, or just seeing what's ahead. It actually means to search for salvation in the midst of your need. It reminds me of a time when, and I've told this story before, but it reminds me of a time, this is one of the greatest examples I had of it, when Eli was a little boy and I took him to the zoo and we were walking along and he was so excited to go and see the tigers, but they had taken one of the tigers out of the main enclosure and, and put it into an enclosure adjacent to the main one. And while we were getting closer to the cages, as we were getting closer, these two tigers started fighting. But Eli, at age two, looked to the right and was convinced the tiger had gotten out and was on its way to eat him. And so even though he was walking ahead and he was super excited, all of a sudden he turned around and he looked to me. He didn't just look to me to ascertain where I was relative to the rest of the Johannesburg Zoo. He looked to me for help. His eyes screamed, Dad, this is beyond me. This is bigger than me. I need you. Save me. And so as he ran towards me, I ran towards him. I scooped him up. I did a quick check just to make sure there was no actual tiger. <laughs> and then I held him. But that's what the scripture means when it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So when we look up to the cross, when we look to the snake, when we look to the sign of Jesus, when we look to Jesus, it means putting your faith in Him for salvation. It's what happens when you realize that you cannot save yourself. And again and again and again, the Bible encourages us not to fix our eyes on us, not to try and save yourself, not to try and help yourself. That's why we are anti-self-help people. Because we're not trying to say, if you come here, we'll give you some tips to how you can save yourself. Maybe in the temporal, like we can help you to, you know, save some money at pick and pay by making smart choices. But, but eternally, eternally we cannot help ourselves to salvation, to righteousness, to our calling. What we need is the grace of God. We need to look to Jesus. So rather than trying to fix yourself, because I know that there are people in this room that are still struggling with certain areas of sin in your life, and you've tried for years to get over it, and you've just given up. I can't do it. I can't overcome that thing. It has too much of a hold on me. Don't try and fix yourself. Instead, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Looking to the cross. That's how we're healed. That's how we're saved. Believe in Him and trust in Him. God sent Jesus to save us, not to judge us. I've come into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus became sin for us so that we be could become the righteousness of God. And so this morning, my question to, to you is, are your eyes on Jesus? Are your eyes on the cross? Have you put your trust, have you put your faith in Him? Have you relied on Him? Have you looked unto Him for salvation? Because if you have, like the people in the wilderness were saved from death, you too have been rescued from the judgment of sin. And God has rebuked the serpent on your behalf.
Isn't that good news? You see how even this story in the Old Testament points to what God would do through Jesus. And, the, and all we needed was to read the New Testament. Jesus told us what that scripture was about. The Bible interprets the Bible. It reveals the Bible. And Jesus did that for us in this story. And that is the snake of healing. And next Sunday, we'll look at another story of the Old Testament and how it points us to the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and who we are in Him. Amen? Amen. I want to encourage you to stand with me this morning.